0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, November first. I'm your host Christine Hargis, and I have Fool.com healthcare contributor Todd Campbell on the phone. Todd, happy November! How was your
1: Halloween? Happy November to you too. Last night was trick or treat up here in New Hampshire. I talked last week about how we were uh, preparing for ghouls and goblins, and uh, gotta say it was a success. It was we had a lot of kids and some fantastic Halloween outfits. Nice. What was the best one you saw? There were two girls who were dressed up identically. Uh, what movie was that? Was that The Shining? Oh, you—you you uh, know, I don't know movies. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, it was two very <laughs> two girls who were dressed up in very creepy <laughs> garb, and maybe our listeners can get you, know, you know send me a note and just tell me if that was The Shining or not. But boy, oh, oh boy, that yeah, I I didn't sleep well last night after <laughs> seeing that. Austin, is it
0: The Shining? I feel like you would know.
1: I'm actually not positive on that one. Huh? All right. So right. the
0: listeners, it goes.
1: I don't. <laughs> we'll have to crowdsource it. <laughs> like I haven't seen The Shining in a long time, so I know the sh- what The shining's about, but I can't remember if the two. Girls it's it's are the anymore. hotel one, right? Yes, the Red Room. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Yep, that's right. <laughs>
0: Clearly, we need to brush up on our scary movies. All right. Well, listeners, if you want to shoot us a note, as usual, it's industryfocus at fool.com. I'm sure every host that gets this email will be like, what were they talking about on that show? But anyway, make our day. Send us a note. So, today, am getting on to healthcare business. It was an action packed week last week. And so, we're going to take you through three fairly different topics, um, all of the most important news from the past week or so in the healthcare world. So First and foremost, this was probably the biggest piece of news, which is that CVS is rumored to be buying Aetna, a health insurer, for $66 billion in what would be the largest health insurance deal ever. Which is pretty interesting. Um, CVS is not a health insurer, it's a retail pharmacy and also a PBM, which is a pharmacy benefits manager. So there's not a whole lot of overlap between these businesses, although there is some, and we'll discuss it. But in general, it would be a very vertical integration. Todd, what do
1: you think? It's intriguing because you think about it, you're able to go out and buy your health insurance, and then be able to have that that healthcare provided by the same company, parent company that you bought your health insurance from. So because you know and I'm sure we'll talk more about this Christine but you know listeners CVS does have 1100 minute clinics within their stores so they've shown a commitment to getting into the provider business they also of course you know sell the over the counter medicine and they fill prescriptions so you have basically a vertically integrated business model where you have the insurer and you have well we even talked about the PBM but you have the insurer you have a pharmacy benefit manager, you have the healthcare provider, and potentially, and then, of course, you have the, um, the prescription fulfillment. So there's a lot of, I guess, intrigue to, okay, that's a really interesting business model. The question would be, will it work?
0: Right. So I don't really see any any synergies within this business model other than the really obvious ones. Maybe they could consolidate their HR departments or, you know, little things like that. But I think you bring up a good point, which is that a lot of the intention behind this deal is to make a stickier, wider relationship with existing customers and with potentially new customers and members as well. Where if somebody is coming to you for one service, you make it really easy and even incentivize them to also use you for another service, like filling your prescriptions, or maybe you're already getting your prescriptions from CVS, and now you're going to stop by the front of the store. That, that's that been something that's been going on forever. So, it's a similar strategy when you think about extending that sort of, oh, well, you're already doing this, so why don't we make it really easy for you to also put more money in my pockets by doing this? Extending that through the entire line of the healthcare system, which is also really smart when you think about, we've talked a lot on the show about the cost of the healthcare system and how expensive drugs are and why that is and one of the key reasons behind drug prices being so high is that there are so many middlemen in between the drug maker and the person who actually consumes the medication and so if you can consolidate a couple of players in that line then you could potentially result in a lot of cost savings which is a very attractive thing to then be able to offer to the other players along the business uh, line those savings pass along a chunk but you
1: also you get
0: to keep that too
1: Yeah, these are huge companies with tens, well, in CVS Health's case alone, 180 billion in trailing 12-month sales, 180 billion. And then you look at you know Aetna, and that's that's 62 billion. But they're also low-margin businesses, right? I think uh, CVS's trailing 12-month net income is only about five billion on that 180. And I think uh, Aetna's is like one and a half billion, I think, on the 62 billion in trailing 12-month sales. So these are low-margin businesses. So if you can even eke out you know, a half a percent or a percent in the cost of providing care, then theoretically, this deal becomes even more attractive. I think that that was kind of what you were what you were aiming at. And I think that, you know, you're really talking about being able to provide the care to the health insurance members at cost, right? Because you're not gonna be charging, you know, a premium uh, to the insurer that you own if someone goes to the Minute Clinic or, or you know, gets a, a, a drug at, at your CVS pharmacy. So I, I think that you can X out some costs there. Uh, there's also, and I think this is this, it's kind of like the elephant in the room. Um, you mentioned stickiness. I, I think that, that is a major, major concern across pharmacy retail right now. How do we stay relevant in a marketplace that is, is moving increasingly away from bricks and mortar? And, and that- if Amazon which you and I talked about on the show, you know, a few months back I think. If they go forward with plans to disrupt the market and provide direct to consumer uh, prescription fulfillment or anything like that, you know, stickiness is going to become paramount.
0: Yeah, that is the elephant in this conversation. Of course CVS is worried about Amazon. It's a retailer. Isn't every retailer worried about Amazon? I mean CVS for a while I looked at them as an exception. There is a great article on fool.com about how CVS is Amazon-proof, but realistically, they're not. I, I Nobody is Amazon-proof. Amazon is reportedly looking into selling their drugs online. This week it came out that they had acquired a wholesale pharmacy license in at least 12 different states. They're reportedly, reportedly developing their own PBM for internal use, which is a classic Amazon move, developing something for your own business in Amazon and then expanding it beyond just Amazon. Amazon walls, and Amazon has a history in healthcare. They previously owned forty percent of Drugstore.com. So this is not wild speculation that Amazon could start to steal some of CVS's business.
1: Right, there's some, there's obviously regulatory issues, and you have to make sure that the the you know there's a reason that there's a pharmacist involved and that people go and pick up their drugs. But they do, you know, listen. Mail order pharmacy is already a really big thing. So, you know, theoretically, there's business models out there that Amazon could leverage to um, to enter and disrupt this market. And, uh, and, you know, that's going to force companies like CVS to get innovative and figure out, okay, how can we add value to the people who are coming into to the stores? Is it going to be through offering telehealth? Will it be helping with chronic disease um, um, management? Will it be you know, what will it be? And I think that's one of the main reasons they moved into the clicks so aggressively, was because they wanted, they recognized that, you know, if you're sick, you're probably still gonna have to go to somebody to get that care. Amazon won't be able to uh, necessarily take care of that over the internet, although with telehealth, who knows, right? Um, but I, I think that, you know, that's going to be probably the, it could be one of the main impetuses for CBS being attracted to doing this deal, we should also recognize, though, that one of the major attractive features of Aetna is that it's very uh, heavily exposed to the Medicare market, and that is perhaps the best business for a health insurer to be in right now.
0: Yeah, why, why is that, Todd?:
1: Well, you've got 76 million baby boomers, and you know 10,000 turning 65 every day. Yep. And as that happens, of course, they're going to be signing up for Medicare, because remember you have to sign up at 65 or you face penalties. Uh, regardless of when you signed for Social Security, Public Service Announcement. Um, so you know you've got this huge market uh, to serve for both Medicare Advantage plans, which is considered Part C, that you know uh, that plans that are sold by by Aetna. Um and you've also have CVS showing some experience in that business because they operate a company called SilverScript, which provides Part D drug uh, plans to Medicare recipients throughout the country. So, you know, there's there's evidence to suggest that that this is is a, a direction that CVS has wanted to move into, i.e., SilverScript. And then, of course, there is this vertical integration. I, you know, I'm trying to figure out though whether or not this can be an accretive deal, and and I really wonder it's devil is going to be in the details here because this is not a small deal. Sixty-six billion, two hundred dollars plus a share is the rumored about. And you know, how are you gonna finance that? Exactly. Is it gonna be all stock? Is it gonna be debt? What is it? Yep, I,
0: I totally agree. That is my huge hang up with this deal. CVS does not really appear to be in a position to execute this in, an, in a creative way anytime soon. Um, I actually, I'm, I'm reminded a little bit of the acquisition of Caremark back in 2007, because that acquisition, which was for 26 billion, was basically a merger of equals, and that I, I think is arguably that was a good move on CVS's part. And we knew going into 2017 that CVS's management has been talking about this year as a rebuilding year, and that they were looking at acquisitions. And so All of that makes me very hopeful that this is the right direction for the company, but I just am so concerned that they don't have any good financing options. This is a company that already does have some debt. It would be acquiring quite a bit of debt from Aetna, and so if they're going to take on more debt to make this acquisition happen, that's not going to be very good for interest expense, that's not going to be good for their credit rating. Their other option, they could potentially do it via stock. I don't really see that being a good option either. CVS's stock has not done very well lately. Meanwhile, Aetna is a really expensive stock. They're trading at about twenty-four times twenty sixteen earnings. I I just I I don't know. I I feel like I'm interested to see how CVS would want to finance this. And of course these are just acquisition rumors right now, so we don't know those details, but I don't see a good path forward for them.
1: I think the other thing that investors have to recognize, too, is that it's not a guarantee that this deal would even get approved if Etna's board agreed to get acquired by CVS. Yeah, people because- on
0: both sides of this table have had their mergers blocked recently. You've got all all the Walgreens and Rite Aid drama between what's been allowed to happen between that which was supposed to be an enormous deal and basically got cut down to just a, a, a shadow of what it used to be. And meanwhile, a merger between Aetna and Humana was also blocked recently.
1: Right, and that was blocked because there was fear that the the Medicare uh, marketplace would get too consolidated in certain parts of the country, and that they were just unable to figure out how to divest enough of the Medicare businesses to make that deal still make sense, so of course that got blocked. Now theoretically, there's not a lot of overlap in these businesses, but regulators could take a look at SilverScript, CVS's Part D program and then look at Aetna's Part D program and Medicare Advantage programs, which of course oftentimes include uh, drug coverage, and they could say, well, what will that do to competition in that market? And again, I think that's a major reason CVS wants to buy Aetna, so if they are forced to divest parts of those businesses, I'm not sure whether or not it would still make as much sense to CVS to do this combination. So I think that your investors are gonna have to really just sort of watch and see how this all plays out, uh, because there are a lot of moving pieces here, and there's potentially a lot of risks associated with it. And you know, one of the other things we should understand too is that CVS Health is, you know, it shows up in a lot of income portfolios, right, because of its dividend. Well, if this deal isn't a creative right out of the way, what does that mean for future dividend increases? How will investors react to that? How much pressure will CVS shares go under, et cetera?
0: Yep, I think that's a, a great point. I mean, they're currently yielding just under 3%. That's not insignificant. And, you know, that could be one of the first things to go if they need the financing to make a deal like this happen. I don't know. I, I look at this and I, I, Actually, don't really like what it says for CVS. It's a company that I went from being fairly bullish on, and now when I look at them having to, to stretch to potentially make this kind of deal just to stay afloat in the wake of Amazon, and all the other competition, I don't know. I, I personally am not as interested in this stock as I once was.
1: Interesting. I, you know, I don't have an opinion um, necessarily. Uh, I, I don't own CVS right now. I don't own Aetna I'm very interested to watch and see how this all plays out. I don't think that I would go out and rush out to buy either one of these stocks on this news, though.
0: Yeah. um, One other potential thing for investors to think about is the fact that Aetna is actually trading well under the buyout price. They're around $170 per share right now. The buyout price, recall, is $200. So if you think that, okay, so twofold. If you think that Aetna's business is strong and that it's a good stock, then it, it then, then it's a buy. you know, if you think it's a buy, then it's a buy, that's kind of a dumb statement, but it's true. Um, or if you think that it's a good buy and you think this deal is going to go through, then there is a fairly sizable arbitrage opportunity, but that's assuming that this does actually go through. and we mentioned all the reasons why it might not because the FTC could could block it or because you know, CBS could decide, hey, we actually can't make the financing work, so we're going to drop it. And it's just a rumor after all. well, it's never good to buy stocks based solely on rumors, it could be a good pickup, particularly if you think that Aetna is a strong business to own on its own merit. Also, kind of on a different note, speaking of health insurance, I just want to make the PSA that the Obamacare exchanges are open today, uh, as of November 1st. They'll be open only through December 15th, which is a smaller time window than normal, so if you are somebody that needs to get health insurance through the exchanges, please go do that as soon as possible. And with that, we'll move on to our second topic of the day. Wow, we spent a while talking about our first topic and we have three total topics. So, sorry listeners, it looks like you're in for a long one. Our second topic of the day, we are going to cover earnings of a company called Exact Sciences. This is a company that was about uh, up about 10% yesterday because of some really strong earnings and this company makes a colon cancer diagnostic test. It's done at home, and essentially what it's trying to do here is eliminate the need for everybody to get a colonoscopy, and by everybody I mean everybody that is supposed to get one, which is people between the ages of 50 and 74. You're supposed to be regularly getting colon cancer screening, but a colonoscopy is no walk in the park. It's, it's not something that people like doing, and because of that, there are a ton of people who should be getting screened regularly, and they aren't. And when you think about the fact that colon cancer is the second deadliest cancer, and it's very preventable if you catch it early, it's pretty frightening that only 62% of Americans who should get screened do so. So, in comes Exact Sciences. They make something called the ColoGuard, and they're hoping to shake up the way that we screen for colon cancer.
1: Colon cancer is the second deadliest cancer. And one of the reasons that it's so deadly, Christine, is that often, too often, it's diagnosed in the later stages of the disease when it's harder to treat. So the concept here is simple. Make it easier for people to get screened earlier. So that way you're catching it in the early stages when it is easy to treat. It's amazing when you look at these stats, Christine. I mean, you've got 80 million people who fall within that, um, that, that screening guideline. And you've essentially got 20 million plus people who are up to date on you know, the screening guideline. So the potential market opportunity for exact sciences is pretty massive. Now this has been you know one of the favorite stocks for short sellers to hate, right? Um, people have not believed this story. For a number of different reasons, and I think that we should probably spend a couple seconds on, I guess, why people wouldn't like the concept of Exact Sciences ColoGuard. Now, ColoGuard is a, a kit. You supply a sample at home. You mail it to Exact Sciences. They evaluate it, and then depending on how that test goes, you may or may not then get recommended to go have a colonoscopy, anyways, right? Colonoscopy has always been considered the gold standard in colon cancer screening. But like you mentioned, the prep for it is significant and it's not a lot of fun. Colonoscopies are also pretty expensive, right? They can cost thousands of dollars a year. So, you know, people look at this and they say, yeah, but colonoscopy is still gonna find, you know, most of the, um, the polyps that can, can turn into cancer. Uh, it, it's, it's more sensitive, if you will. Um, it's still, you know, the ideal, uh, screening mechanism, and you only have to do it once every 10 years. With Cologuard, you have to do it once every three years, right? So you, so you have to take these things into consideration. So a lot of people felt that doctors would be hesitant to prescribe this. I think what they failed to understand though, is just how resistant some patients are to getting a colonoscopy and how, uh, doctors will view that against the availability of a relatively simple test that can identify a lot of the risk in developing this important or uh, dangerous disease. And as a result, you know, when Exact Sciences puts up its quarterly (laughs) numbers every quarter for the past year and a half, they've surprised to the upside. Demand has outpaced quarter after quarter after quarter the expectations of industry watchers. And that's starting to translate into some pretty meaningful sales, Christine. Yep, you
0: mentioned the short interest, and I want to continue with that by talking a little bit about Citron Research, which has been in the news a bunch because of their report about Shopify. So this is a company that does a lot of shorting. They basically does the the bear case for companies and bets against them. So even even given the fantastic story behind Exact Sciences, and you know the way that you describe it, Todd, it really does make a lot of sense why this company would be successful. It's it's fulfilling a, a need in the market, but Citron uh, Research called Exact Exact Sciences a poster child for what goes wrong when Wall Street gets a hold of a healthcare concept with no discrimination for whether it's good or bad medicine. They assigned it a short-term price target of $20 back in May, and that was about 40% below the price at the time. Today, the stock's up at like $55 or so. And in the medium to long term, they basically said that this is probably going to be either a single-digit stock or even go to zero. Like, this was a very, very bearish report, and yet it continues to prove them wrong. More than 10000 healthcare providers ordered their first ColoGuard kit during the previous quarter, and 91,000 have ordered it since it was launched. The company had to increase their 2017 guidance. They were anticipating 230 million to 240 million on 550,000 tests. They had to bump that up to 254 million to 257 million on test volume of anywhere between 568,000 to 572,000. These are big numbers, and it's promising. And to me, this looks like a company that is on the verge of really breaking out.
1: You know, we, you threw some numbers out there and we can even add a little bit of additional context to that. I mean, think about it. there's 91,000 physicians now that have ordered a Cologuard test. That's up from 60,000 at the end of 2016. So fifty percent more physicians have ordered a test between, you know, from the third quarter to the, to the end of the fourth quarter of last year. That's That's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, you're talking about 73 million dollars in sales uh, reported, 72.6, if you want to be exact, uh, reported for the third quarter. That's up 158 percent year over year. Uh, re- really, really quite remarkable uh, growth. And then, if you think about that guidance, the upped guidance that they gave, Christine. You know, you, you talk about going to 254 from 230 million at the low end uh, in revenue. From Q2 to Q3, you know, they came in at, to, to 2017 thinking they were only going to do about 200 million. So yeah. that guidance has been increased by 25 um, percent. Yeah, know, and, and a huge amount. part of that is
0: on volume too, which is important. I mean, you can look at the per unit revenue, and that goes up and down a little bit. It was up in the past quarter. It now sits at about 451 dollars revenue per test. But that—that's just that's half of the equation. The other half is the volume. Actually, you know, there's even a third part, which is cost per test, and that's down. So that—that's a very good yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, this is a company yeah, that Cost doesn't... per
1: test fell to like 129, Christine, and um, their goal is 125 per test. So think about that. Their average average price for the test is 451. You know, that's up nine percent. Their cost of these tests is falling, and one of the big knocks against Exact Sciences has been. When will this company turn a profit? Because it's spending a ton of money on marketing and distribution. And I think that when you look at the size of this market and you look at the fact that the the trend in price is stable to up, the the trend in costs is dropping, and more and more people are, are are ordering the test. To me, it feels like it's a you know the profitability question is it's just a matter of time. Investments are being made now to to penetrate the market. That's important, and um and that means that you know it may still be a while before they get in the black, but. I feel like it's coming.
0: Yeah, I mean that's exactly what I meant when I said earlier that they're they're ready to break out. I, I think that they are getting very, very close to profitability. Estimates have them having positive earnings in twenty nineteen. I think for the time being, the stock will probably have a pretty bumpy ride. But overall, I think the bull case is pretty strong. The company believes it can capture about thirty percent of the entire colorectal screening market. And that should be annual revenue of about four billion. Compare that to the current market cap of six and a half billion. And if you if you believe in the bull case, I think it could be a pretty profitable investment. But again, for the long term, I mean, until they are consistently uh, churning a profit and they can continue to get their expenses down, particularly as a percentage of revenue, and that the trend that metric is falling, then it's you know they're they're still kind of early stages.
1: Yeah, and the caveat here is this is an incredibly volatile stock too, Christine. You could easily see this stock go up or down ten percent in any given day. For sure. So if you're buying you're buying it for that long term opportunity to potentially target thirty to forty percent of the eighty million people, you're not buying it um with the idea that you're gonna, you know, be perfect in a, in any one three month span.
0: Yep, yep, absolutely. So, all right, let's move right along to our third and final topic of the day, where we're going to dig kind of deeply into the consumer goods shows territory here, but it does have a healthcare tie in, which is why I, I asked Vince's permission. He said that we could talk about it. Um, so, this is Constellation Brands, which makes products like Corona, Modelo. Uh, it an- announced that it's buying. Just under a 10% stake in Canopy Growth, which is the world's largest publicly traded cannabis company. And so they provide medical marijuana to Canada, um, is their, their, what they're known for as a business. And reportedly, Constellation is looking to make some cannabis infused drinks.
1: Okay, so this is a very, very interesting story because up until now, everybody has said, I don't know, marijuana has got a lot of hype. I'm not really sure whether or not smart money is interested in it. You know, a lot of these companies are being bootstrapped by family or, or small venture capital. Um, this changes the game in a, way, in a way for the industry because now you've got an eight billion revenue company that you know is a, is a leader in beer, wine, and spirits, willing to fork over you know nine figures just to get 10% of a company that I think Christine is doing like 13 million Canadian per quarter. So, you know, the 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 price to sales and the in the premium, if you will, that Constellation is is having to pay to get that 10% stake is incredibly high. And I think what that's telling you is a few different things. Uh, okay, let's let's attack them, right? So one thing you mentioned is would we end up with cannabis infused uh, alcoholic beverages? I question that a little bit only because sometimes alcohol and, and cannabis do not play nicely together. And I think that we need to recognize that 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 there could be some risks, there could be additional regulatory hurdles, uh, there could expose you know some liability problems there. I, I I don't know how we'll play that out. Maybe they overcome that, maybe they don't. I think, Christine, this is more of a defensive move by Constellation Brands. You know, they've got a history of going out there and aggressively pursuing high growth. Um, we'll call them sins, if you will, where they look at and say, "Okay, we are in spirits, we're in beverages, we're in beer, and we're in wine." When wine started to lose some of its momentum, they started gobbling up small craft breweries. Like, for example, they bought Ballast Point uh, so they could land the Sculpin Ale um, for Which a billion is dollars. By the way. What's that? Which is delicious. I'll just throw that oh, out there. Oh, it's wonderful. It's <laughs> wonderful. They also bought Funky Buddha, uh, an, another another one of those high growth brands, um, and that's offsetting the decline in their wine business. Um, so they've got these three areas of their business, and they're looking at it and they're saying, okay, we've got wine to offset beer. When one of those is doing well, we've got spirits that also mix in there. But what happens if overall demand for alcohol falls? And you know, some of the research out there, Christine, suggests that as cannabis use increases, the use of alcohol actually declines. And I think the reason for that is, as I said previously, sometimes alcohol and marijuana don't play nicely to what, with one another. Um, so I think that they may be looking at it and saying, let's go out there, we'll buy a stake in, in Canopy, we have warrants now that we can increase the stake over time, we'll see how this does in Canada because This is, you know, Canopy is a Canadian marijuana company, right? Still in the US, marijuana is not federally legal, right? There's many states have approved marijuana, but it's not legal federally. So Constellation won't be selling, you know, marijuana products from Canopy at any time soon, all right, uh, in the US. However, up in Canada, there's already uh, medical marijuana is is allowed, it's legal um, throughout Canada. And in 2018, recreational marijuana is going to be allowed. It looks like, anyways. Yep. And if that happens, then you're talking about a, a, the first developed major market for both medical and recreational. Canopy is a huge player up there. Like you said, biggest market cap uh, in the pure play marijuana space. Um, and, you know, they've got some really, really Big investments going on to boost capacity and to increase distribution. They just started a, uh, we'll call it the Amazon, if you will, of cannabis. A uh, new online web portal that combines all of the brands and the things that they sell into one spot. Um, they want to be able to theoretically open that up to, you know, some of their competitors, perhaps, that's, uh, you know, down the road, and be able to serve consumers. Um, whatever it is they're looking for, quickly uh, and easily. So I think that there's a, there's it's an interesting story. It's an expensive story, but I think from Constellation standpoint, it's a little bit of a defensive move.
0: Yep, for sure. And I, I think the way that they're approaching it is pretty smart too. Where they are only making a relatively small investment in canopy growth for now, and the way that they're able to play this geographically, I think, is also pretty savvy. They should be able to get into Canada, as you mentioned, as soon as recreational marijuana becomes legal there, which is supposed to happen sometime next year. Constellation has said it will not sell in countries unless it's completely legal. And so then all of a sudden that opens up Canada as an option. If you look at what their CEO has said about um, <clears throat> about legalization in the United States, it's pretty clear that they think it's highly likely. That medical and recreational marijuana will be approved in the US. And they kind of imply that it would happen pretty soon, which I, I do think that's a little bit too bullish of a prediction, but. I, I, I don't know. I, I kind yeah, of the current my administration
1: makes me question that a little bit because you know I, I don't know. I mean, we have seen Jeff Sessions and some other things comments about marijuana that makes me want to tap the brakes a little bit on yeah. that kind of enthusiasm. But certainly, in the next five or ten years, Christine, you know, the, the landscape could look very different here in, in America. Yeah. Um, and and this isn't even the only big country that you know these companies can penetrate. I mean, Canopy is already working in Germany. And um, so that gives Constellation access to that market as well.
0: Yep, absolutely. And so then they'd be able to tap into these other markets first, and then sort of establish their business model, establish some best practices, bring them over to the U.S. in five years, ten years, however however long it does take. I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Constellation has so much experience in dealing with regulated products and distribution. And think about it—that is that kind of experience can really accelerate the learning curve for Canopy. So, if Canopy's smart and you know they listen to Constellation, it could really, um, I guess, accelerate. Um, their ability to tap into these growth markets.
0: Yeah, we, we've talked a lot about Constellation side of things, but turning to Canopy's side of things, this is great news for Canopy growth. I mean, this is basically an endorsement that, yeah, you are the best marijuana stock out there. I mean, Sands, the the CEO of Constellation, he called out Canopy's management, saying that these guys are a seasoned leadership team. They understand the legal, regulatory, and economic landscape for an emerging market. And Sands also went on to talk about how bullish he is on this market as a whole so if you're if you're with him then it I, I, this is a really great endorsement of canopy growth I will say though that canopy is still so expensive as a stock I mean I, I'm very bullish on the business itself but I I'm so hesitant about the stock itself just because it's trading at over 40 times a price to sales, which is absolutely astronomical, and pretty much every marijuana company out there is trading at equivalently insane valuations.
1: Yeah, I mean you you've got a company that you know is growing very quickly so you have to take the price to sales metric with a little bit of a grain of salt because that's not usually forward looking but you you have to look at it and say okay they're growing very quickly they're boosting the capacity they're driving down their cost per Kilogram, which is important. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, though, Christine, with this, that it's a little scary, is that you know, unlike beer, where you set a price and that price is pretty stable at the retail market and the distribution channel throughout the distribution channel, the price of cannabis is pretty volatile. Um, so we're gonna have to watch and see how that plays out because it's obviously you can only control so much on the price. Uh, you know, you can lower the cost, but if the price is dropping faster than you're saving money in the cost, that could create a problem for the company further out as well. So. I think it's one to keep an eye on. It's an exciting, interesting growth story. Um, But you're right, you have to pay up for that growth.
0: Yep, for sure. All right, I will end it on that note. Thank you so much, Todd, for being with me today. As always, And folks, thanks for listening. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening and Fool on!
1: Holla